Uh, Again, our scripture is Psalm 110. I'll give you a chance to turn to it if you have your Bible in front of you at home. (coughs) We'll be reading the whole psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. May God add his blessing to his holy word. So, have you ever read the Old Testament? Kind of, Your imagination is going, and you view the Old Testament through the eyes of the Jews back then, as they tried to make sense of some of these passages that God had given them. Some of these verses that they read, that they told each other, were particularly bewildering, especially those concerning the coming of the Messiah, the coming Messiah that they hadn't met. They must have been, I thought, quite bewildered, maybe intrigued, because these verses of the Moses and the Psalms and the prophets must have seen as impossible as they were astounding. And they probably were just all sorts of confused. I mean, imagine again, you're, you're studying the Holy Scriptures. You're opening them up. You're hundreds of years before Christ. You don't have the perspective of the New Testament at all. So you're just reading these words. You're trying to make sense of what's spoken about this person you've never met, this Messiah. And according to the Old Testament Scripture, the, the Messiah would be a victorious king, and yet he would be a suffering servant. He would be a prophet, but also a teacher. He would be born, but of a virgin. He would be both divine and and mortal. He would be vilified by God and exalted by God. I mean, you're reading all these things, and it seems like they're contradicting. How, how could all of this fit into one person? It almost makes no sense. Yet we start to see this outline of a Messiah, this impossible, astounding Messiah. How do you take it? What theories and interpretations as an Old Testament Jew do you make of these words? I mean, what you should do is just take God at his word. That even if this seems impossible to you, somehow God will make it so. But what many of the Jews back then did, because it was so mind-blowing, is that they started to reduce the concept of the Messiah down to something more manageable, something they could wrap their heads around. And so what they, they eventually landed on was the idea that the Messiah would be a mighty warrior who would come in, who would conquer the world, conquer the region, and recreate Israel, reestablish Israel, and rule over that. that. That they could get on board with. But unfortunately, that was a gross simplification of what the Messiah was to be. And that's what, what we get into the problems when we get into the Gospels, and when people's expectations are coming against the reality of Jesus Christ, and there's a huge clash there. And this all makes me think, weirdly enough, of Swiss Army knife. Did you ever have a Swiss Army knife? You ever get one, you know, maybe as a present? I got probably one of the best presents I ever got. 
was when my parents gave me my first genuine Swiss Army knife. I mean, it was red. It had the little cross. That's how you knew it was high quality, right? It's not, not the, the knockoff. It's a real Swiss Army knife. It's not just, you know, that, that you knew it wasn't just a blade and a sheath. It wasn't just a pocket knife. A Swiss Army knife was better than that. Mine had this whole toolbox that fit into my pocket. It had two blades, a saw, I was trying to remember all these things, an awl, a nail file, tweezers, scissors, corkscrew, bottle opener, and a screwdriver. And probably a couple more things. I, I don't remember everything. But it was so beautiful. And I remember just taking it and opening every single one and just imagining all the potential, all the possibilities of my Swiss Army knife. In fact, I got this knife right before we went with my family on vacation in Florida. And we, I remember very vividly driving down there and just imagining, hoping, desperately hoping for situations where I'd be able to use my Swiss Army knife. And so I had to come up with some pretty crazy situations like, um, oh, Dad, you got a, a, a splinter? Here's, here's my tweezers. You got it out. Or is, you know, are, you, are you tied to a chair in a burning building? My tiny little saw is going to get you out of there. You know, of course, it's being Florida, you know, alligators are a fact of life, so I'm sure that's when my corkscrew would come in very useful and make those alligators turn around and go home. I really wanted to use that Swiss Army knife. But the thing about a Swiss Army knife is, of course, it's not just one thing. It's not just a blade. It's one object that has many roles. And that's what I think we need to understand when we look at the Messiah, when we look at Jesus Christ, I think this gross, gross oversimplification of Jesus is still something we struggle with in the church today. People latch onto one idea of who Jesus is, and they ignore everything else that's in that Swiss Army knife, that's in that toolbox. He has many roles. And above all the many descriptions that we see of the Messiah in the Old Testament, it's something that we call, these three roles that we call the fancy term, your seminary term of the day, this fancy term we call the threefold office of Jesus. The threefold office. And what that is, is basically we're saying that Jesus has these three offices that, he's, that are above and beyond any other role that he has. And those three offices are king, prophet, and priest. King, prophet, priest. That's the threefold office of Jesus. He's not just one of those things. He's all of those things. And each of those roles have a different function, yet they work together for his purpose and his mission. Now, kind of wrapping your mind around the threefold office of Jesus doesn't really come naturally to new Christians. It's maybe kind of a weird concept. You may be really on board with Jesus as king, but Jesus as prophet or priest might be really strange to you. We really only discover his roles by reading through the Bible, and we really only start to understand it, start to understand it, by studying the Word, praying to the Spirit to give us that illumination and inspiration. And I think a very good place to start is right here with Psalm 110. Now, for those of you who have longer memories than I do, mine goes back about two weeks, and that's it. But for those of you who have really long memories, you might remember back when we were going through the book of Mark, we touched on Psalm 110. It was actually as part of the story when Jesus was in the temple 
And he was arguing with the scribes about who the Messiah was. And he quoted Psalm 110 as, as an argument that the Messiah would be both human and divine. He would be both the son of David and the Lord over David. That might spark some memory there for you. So, so Jesus already pointed back. In fact, Psalm 110, as I made the statement before, is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Three of the Gospels quote it. Peter quotes it. Paul quotes it. It's a very important psalm because it's all about the person of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the premier messianic psalm of the Old Testament. But what I want to focus on today is how the psalmist here helps shed light on two of the three of these offices, of the threefold offices of Jesus Christ that of Jesus as king and Jesus as priest. Psalm 110 begins with this picture of a great king, with Jesus as king, who is not just great, but he's victorious. He's gone out and he's conquered. He's gone out in battle against his enemies and he's won. And that sounds pretty good. He's, he's going to win over everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us a promise of when King Jesus will fight his final battle. And it says these words, Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's Psalm 110 right there, too. And, and it says right here, the last enemy Jesus will destroy is death. Our king will be victorious over everything, including death itself. That's exciting. I can get on board with that. And that's the astounding part of Psalm 110. But it is not the impossible part. The impossible part is when we get to the verse I want to focus on today, and that's verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. Because here, the psalmist takes a very hard right turn into uncharted territory. Verse 4 says of the Messiah, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now this, mind, this verse must have broken the minds of Old Testament Jews who are sitting there trying to make sense of what this means. Why is there a problem? You're reading it, you're, you're like, okay, that's fine. I, I don't have a big problem with this verse. What, what's the conflict here? What the problem is, in Israel, the offices of king and priest were mutually exclusive. You could not be both. If you were king, you could not be priest. If you were a priest, you could not be king. Why? Kings of Israel were forbidden from taking up the, uh, the duties of a priest. We see in two instances, King Saul and King Uzziah both tried to do this. They tried, they go, well, a priest isn't, you know, here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take up these priestly duties. And they both get chastised and punished by God because that is outside of a king's duties. And we also know that no kings, came, uh, no kings could become priests because all priests came from one of the 12 tribes. And that was the tribe of Levi. And the tribe of Levi had all the priests. That, if you were born into that tribe, you pretty much knew what your job was going to be from the day you were born. Aaron... Moses' brother right there, you remember back in the Old Testament? He was the first Levite. He was, he was the head of that order, and he was the first high priest over Israel. And then from then on, all of the priests we encounter in the Old Testament 
Eli, Ezra, Ezekiel, even into the New Testament when we meet John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, they're all Levites. They all come from that one tribe. So the Levites had all the, the priests, and the other 11 tribes had the potential for bringing up kings. These were mutually exclusive. So follow this. Follow me here on this. This meant it was impossible for this king, this messianic king, that the Bible had been prophesying about, that Psalm 110 prophesied about, who promised to be a physical descendant of King David, of the tribe of Judah, that he come from the tribe of Judah, it was impossible for him to also be a priest of the tribe of Levi. It's just not going to happen. A Levi is not going to marry into Judah. That's just not going to happen. So we get this bizarre paradox. And that's why I think a lot of people in the Old Testament stumbled over this verse did not know what to make of it. And that, that paradox is only resolved in the second part of verse 4 here when God lays out this new paradigm here. He says that the priesthood of this Messiah that's to come was not going to be a Levite priest. He was not going to be a priest from the line of Aaron. Instead, he was going to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, that clears up everything, right? I mean... That's a name we bandy about every day. How about that Melchizedek, we say? Who doesn't talk about him? Who doesn't have a firstborn son named after Melchizedek? Okay, we don't know who Melchizedek is. We, he's one of the more obscure characters of the Bible. In fact, outside of Psalm 110, and a mention in the book of Hebrews, the only time we actually see Melchizedek is all the way back in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 has this little account of Abraham, who's traveling, he goes to ancient Jerusalem. They used to call it just Salem back then. And he encounters this king named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was really unique uh, in the fact that he was both a king and a priest of the one true God. So Aaron, or Aaron, Abraham goes up to him, and he gives the priest a tithe, a tenth of everything he has, and the priest king Melchizedek blesses him in return. And that's it. That's the entirety of that story. But here we get this concept, this, this prototype of the Messiah, of one person who could hold both the office of a king and a priest. And that's what Psalm 110 is pointing us towards. Psalm 110 says that Melchizedek is an example of how the Messiah will function in the same way. And as we move through the Old Testament, Zechariah 6 explains further in this. He says, it is the Messiah who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit on and rule his throne. See, we've got the kingship there. The Messiah will be king. And then Zechariah goes on. He says, and he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. There's a connection there. A connection, a harmony between the king and the priesthood. And that's what we're going to zero in on today. That Jesus is not only a king above and beyond all other kings, but he's an eternal priest who's above and beyond all other priests. And these are both very important to you. I'm going to get to that in just a second. So keep, keep following along with me. Why does Jesus need to be a priest in the first place? Why? So why does Jesus need to be a priest in the first place? What does that mean for us? Why do we care? Well, we care because if Jesus was only a king, we'd be in a lot of trouble. He would be against us. Why? Because when we sin, 
We place ourselves on the other line, other, other side of the line of the king, of Jesus. We place ourselves as his enemy. And all of us sin. Therefore, all of us have decided we are going to take up arms against the one true king. We're going to fight Jesus. We're going to be his enemy. And what does it say here in Psalm 110? The enemy or the king will be victorious, right? He'll put everything under his dominion. All of his enemies will be his footstool. We will be in trouble if he is just the king because he will conquer us. We'll be his enemies, and that's a problem. What we desperately need as we look at Jesus as king, as this Messiah as king, is we need a priest to come in and make atonement for us, to make an atoning sacrifice on our behalf so our sins will be washed away. But it can't just be any priest. See, Israel had priests. Why did they need the Messiah to be a priest? They already had priests. But what the Bible argues is that these priests aren't enough. They're not good enough. You see, the problem of sin goes on and on and on. We keep sinning every day, and what, they, what would happen is a person in Old Testament would sin, they'd go to the temple, the priest would sacrifice an animal for the, as a sin offering, their sin would be forgiven, but whoops, the next day they sin again. And that loop keeps continuing. So the sin never ends, but a priest only lives so long. And when the priest dies, he effectively fails in his job to keep atoning for the sins of the people. This is a problem. Ezra died. Aaron died. But their job never ended. It's not ideal. It's why in the book of Hebrews, the author there is exuberant when he holds up Jesus as priest because he says, these other priests couldn't get the job done, but this guy can. That's why I'm happy. I want to read this to you because in Hebrews 7, these words bring such a joy to my heart. I love him. It's just some of the, the, one of the best passages in the New Testament. And starting in verse 23, the author says this, Now there have been many of those priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood forever. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. And because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above all the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day by day, first for his sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints high, as high priests men in all their weaknesses, But the oath, the oath, the covenant, that's what they're talking about here, the new covenant, which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Praise God for these words. Because Jesus, our priest king, is able to save completely. He's able to save us from himself. Not only in part, he's not only able to save us in part, he's not only able to save us while we're still under warranty, or just on the weekends, or whenever he feels like it, he's able to save us in full, in a way the Old Testament priests never, ever could. He does this by functioning not only as our priest, who's making the sacrifice, but as the sacrifice itself. A one-and-done sacrifice that once done never needs to be done again. We don't need a priesthood to come back to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today to start atoning, atoning sacrifices again. We already have Jesus Christ 
and his sacrifice was good, not only for everything that came before, but everything that is to come. Now, just in case you're worried that this priest king might take a look at your life and go, well, I was on board. I was on board with Darlene for the first couple of years of her life, but now she's just, uh, she's, I, I'm done with that. I'm done with, with all these sins. I'm done with, I'm frustrated. I'm walking away from this. She was saved, but no longer. I'm, get, I'm getting out of that. Do you ever worry about that? You think Jesus might give up on you? Look back again at Psalm 110, verse 4, because I think you just missed something very important here. It says right here, God has sworn that this will be done, that the Messiah will be this eternal priest. And, what's the, what else does it say? God will not change his mind about it. He won't decide that you aren't worth it one day. He says, yeah, I've sworn this will be done, and it will be done, and it will be done forever. And because of that, you have a path to salvation. That's what this is all about. Verse, chapter, or Psalm 110, verse 4. It's this king who has set himself up to conquer all, pulls you across the battle lines, washes your sins away as your priest, and puts you on his side. That's our salvation. That's what we're anticipating. If Jesus wasn't our high priest, we wouldn't have this path. We wouldn't have it available to us. We might think that we could try to get to God through our own works, by bargaining with him, by believing in lesser idols, but there is only one path to God, and that's through Jesus Christ, through a perfect king and a perfect priest. This week, I want to encourage you to start spending time in prayer and encourage you to start seeing Jesus not just as a king, but as your eternal priest. See what that means for you. Read uh, Hebrews chapters 5 and chapter 7. Start to formulate this whole new opinion of this office of Jesus Christ. See a, a new dimension of his love and his care for you. Find a security in your salvation you might not have felt before as you see, as you see God swearing that he will uphold this forever and live in Christian freedom, washed of your sins, brought over to his side, the side of the priesthood, a priest king of God who fights, who wins, who reigns, who sacrifices, who atones for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it may be strange for us to think of you as our eternal priest, but thank God that you are, because we need one who is continually atoning for our sin. And Lord, we know that you are. We know that right now, Lord, we see your son on the cross dying for us. That's that sacrifice right now for us. We know that through that atoning sacrifice, every single one of our sins has been forgiven when we fall upon your grace and your mercy. Lord, help us to worship you properly. Worship you not just as a king, but as a prophet and as a priest as well. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you that you see us as worth it, even though we might not feel that we are. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. It came down to us on this wonderful, glorious day of Pentecost. It fills us with a new understanding of who you are and what you offer our lives. In your name. I feel like we <clears throat> have people in leadership
in our lives, whether that's political office, whether that's a youth director or a pastor. And we hold them to high standards, maybe as we should. And we expect and hope that they would personify perfection or as close to it as they can. And the beauty of Jesus fulfilling the role of priest and king is that not only is he able to fulfill both, he's able to fill both perfectly and completely. And whether we realize it or not, that's what we're looking for. Whether we realize it or not, that's what we're seeking out. Whether we realize it or not, that is what gives us hope and what gives us joy and what gives us salvation. So we are grateful to serve Jesus Christ who is a perfect sacrifice, our perfect priest, our perfect king uh, that fills all those roles in a way that no human ever could. And that is the Lord and Savior whom we worship and whom we chase and whom we strive after. And that is good news. Brothers and sisters, we miss you. We love you. Go in peace, and we'll see you next week.